I argue, and I have an entire book arguing that America had a Christian founding, but I don't actually argue that America was founded as a Christian nation, because to my ears, and I think to many modern ears, that just sounds exclusive, as if it's a nation founded by and for Christians, where non-Christians will maybe be tolerated, but not much more than that. I just don't think that was the case. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today we are taking another step in our investigation of Christian nationalism. All month long, we are invoking the unassuming style of Peter Falk's Columbo to ask just one more thing about Christian nationalism. We are sitting down with the key voices for and against Christian nationalism, and we're seeking to hear what they have to say about the subject what Christian nationalism is, what it is not, why it is good, or why it is not. And over the course of these dozen or so interviews, our prayer is that God would give more light than heat to this important subject. Next month, we will begin sorting out some of these claims. But today, we're sitting down with church historian and noted author Mark David Hall to discuss the subject of Christian nationalism. So Mark, welcome to Christ Overall. Well, thank you so much for having me. Glad you're here. Steve, glad to have you back, brother. Glad to be here and looking forward to our conversation today. Absolutely. Now, Steve, I'm curious, have you and Mark crossed paths at all? Do you guys in ETS or anything like that have any experience? Not not that I'm aware of anyway. I've only come across Mark's books and and really reflecting on, you know, the history of, of America and the impact of church and state and some of the debates that are going on today. So that's where I've come across Mark and been greatly helped by his writings. Yeah, likewise, uh, the books we're going to talk about today, Did America Have a Christian Founding, as well as Proclaiming uh, Liberty Across the Land. Certainly looking forward to to those. And Mark, maybe just give us some background on yourself. Uh, how did you come to be a historian? How did you kind of begin studying these things about the America's Founding? Well, thank you. So um, I, had a, I had the privilege of interning for the Christian Legal Society, both in high school and college. And my plan was to go and become an attorney and litigate church-state cases. And I even took the LSAT as a senior at Wheaton College. And yet in, in thinking about it, reflecting about it, I decided my gifts, talents, and abilities and interests really lie in the academy more than in litigating cases. And so I shift direction and I went off and earned a Ph.D., at the University of Virginia doing American political thought stuff. And yet I got dragged into these debates because the U.S. Supreme Court has been crystal clear that we must interpret the First Amendment in light of the founders' views. And yet the Supreme Court justices, by and large, at least the progressive ones, profoundly distorted their views. And so this got me into writing and editing books on these subjects and trying to bring out lesser-known documents. And so I've kind of made a little cottage industry of that, writing about the American founding, religious liberty, church-state relations. What's been fun over the last five years or so is I've been brought into some actual cases as an expert witness, helping to litigate them with the Alliance Defending Freedom or other organizations. And that's kind of coming full circle. I'm back to what I thought I was going to do, and yet I'm doing it in a way that I never would have expected I could do it. 
That's wonderful. Well, again, brother, we're thankful for the time that you're giving to us here to talk about some of these important things and certainly what's being related in the culture around us. I think over the last number of years, we've seen Christian nationalism as both kind of a a bogeyman that has been out there and others who've kind of taken on that title and kind of owned that and said, yes, we are that. And so certainly thinking about that and would love just to think more today about America's founding and the debate that surrounds that was America founded as a Christian nation. Others have said the exact opposite. It was a secular nation from the beginning. Others have kind of, you know, made middle ground there. Help us just to see the lay of the land of what are the arguments for and against America's founding being a Christian nation? Sure. Well, I'm framing the question a little bit differently as I do with my book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? And what you see is you have two sets of answers. Academics are overwhelmingly on the side of absolutely not. Um, The founders were deists. It was influenced by a secularized Lockean liberalism. And maybe there were a few Orthodox Christians bouncing around, but they're effectively irrelevant. Now, that's not all academics, of course. You have a number of good, good, good folks out there making good arguments. But still, most of the literature says that. In reaction to that, you had Christian popular authors. And by that, I don't mean anything derogatory, just they don't have a background in the academy, they don't have PhDs, but they kind of sensed intuitively this is not right. And so they wrote books published by Christian presses wherein they said, no, America had a wonderful Christian founding. Virtually all the founders were Christians and Orthodox Christians, and even ones like Thomas Jefferson were more Christian than we had thought. And so they, they, they overstate the case way too much on the other side. And since they aren't academics, they tend to make errors that make it pretty easy for professional academics to poke holes in their arguments. Now, I think they're actually more right than wrong, but still it's problematic. So what I've attempted to argue is very carefully, as a trained scholar, make an argument that America did have a Christian founding. And one of the very first things I do is I lay out what do I mean by a Christian founding? Oh, I could just mean that all of Americans of European descent are Christians. They would have identified themselves as Christians. Well, if that's the case, and we obviously did, 98% Protestant, 2% Roman Catholics, maybe 2,000 Jews in four or five American cities, overwhelmingly a people who identified themselves as Christians. But they might have been heterodox Christians. They might have been Christians trying to explicitly found a secular political order. So that's not very interesting. I then get into the possibility, well, maybe we could say we had a Christian founding if the founders were all Orthodox, Nicene Creed Christians. Now, for sure, we know that most were not deists. By my count, you have maybe two deists among the uh, America's founders. A few others that are clearly not Orthodox Christians, uh, John Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson, but not necessarily deists. You can be heterodox without being a deist. So I'd, I'd like to then demolish the claim that most or many of them were deists. And yet you have to admit, you can't really prove that most of them were Orthodox Christians just simply because we lack the records. Well, I consider a couple other possibilities, but I end up in with, with the possibility that I think leaves me in very good company because scholars have written book after book attempting to talk about the intellectual influence on America's founders. Were they influenced by Lockean liberalism, the Scottish school of moral sense, the common law tradition? And my argument is, look, let's put Christianity on the table. Were they influenced by Christian ideas or by ideas developed within the Christian tradition of political reflection. And I think you can make an excellent argument that they were. And not only was this one tradition, but it was really a predominant tradition in the late 18th century. And so I argue in that sense, America had a Christian founding in the sense that the founders were profoundly influenced by Christian ideas. That's helpful. 
So I know one author who has kind of thought through these things is Greg Frazier. And I know that if you've engaged with him a little bit, he's made the point of that the founders were neither theists nor complete deist rationalists. He makes this uh, theistic rationalist is kind of his idea. Could you help us understand that and kind of where you sit with regards to that idea that the founders were theistic rationalists? Yeah, so um, what he's doing is he's picking up on something I just alluded to. Most people understand deism to be an idea that there's a creator God who creates a world and then steps away from it. He doesn't involve himself in the affairs of men and nations, so he doesn't do miracles. Well, if that's what we mean by deism, I think it's probably the case that only Ethan Allen and Thomas Paine are deists, and I think Greg Fraser would agree with me on that. But Frazier says, look, you have these other people out there like a John Adams and Thomas Jefferson that are clearly not Orthodox Christians, and yet they do seem to believe that God intervenes in human affairs. And so if they aren't deists and they aren't Orthodox Christians, what are they? Well, I'll invent a new term and call them theistic rationalists. And I think his term works all right with the Thomas Jefferson and a John Adams, where he and I part ways is he believes that some founders, like a James Madison, a James Wilson, and George Washington, that they aren't Orthodox Christians either, that they're theistic rationalists. And I just don't think the evidence is there to prove that. In fact, I think in the case of Wilson, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. Now, James Madison's very illustrative here. James Madison stayed at Princeton, the College of New Jersey at the time, an extra year, presumably studying for the deity. He seems to have been a very pious man. After he left Princeton, he was just so private about his religious beliefs that I think it's a fool's error to call him an Orthodox Christian, a theistic rationalist, or a deist. And so I just say we don't know. But in the absence of knowing, we shouldn't insist that he's one thing or the other. So Greg Frazier and I um, are on the same page with respect to a lot of a lot of the founders. He's what's called a Straussian, and so he's really interested in the elites. He's not interested in, in the vast majority of civic leaders in the American founding who are in the first federal Congress, the Constitutional Convention, the state houses. And so he focuses like a laser. He focuses like a laser on just this handful of founders, and he makes his argument. But I think he might even agree with me. If you turn your eye from these elite eight founders and look at the broader generation of founders, the evidence of deism, evidence of theistic rationalism, it quickly dissipates. 50 to 75 percent of America's founders are, are, are Calvinist, 98% Protestants. They tend to be um, church members unless it's hard to join a church, as it was with some Calvinist churches, but that's not necessarily evidence that you aren't an Orthodox Christian, just because you haven't gone through these rigorous application processes. I think even he would agree when you look at the broader constellation of founders, we have lots of evidence that the founders are Orthodox, pious Christians, precious little evidence that they were heterodox, theistic rationalist, or deist. You mentioned one name there, James Wilson, and I believe that you've done some significant study on him. Maybe just kind of give us a, you know, tap into his history and how he kind of shines a light on understanding that founding era of somebody that would be maybe not as mainstream as a Jefferson or an Adams or Madison, but helps us to understand the founding generation. Sure. Well, I think um, actually a few years ago, I did a survey with Gary, Gary Gregg of the University of Louisville. 
and we surveyed a bunch of, uh, of scholars, like 90 founders, and we said, okay, we all know Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Franklin, but other than these elite six or seven, who are the important founders that we should know something about, but we don't? James Wilson came in top of that list. Um, I think probably the most underrated founder that we have. Now, he shouldn't be elevated above George Washington, right? No one's arguing that. Just here was someone who played a, an incredibly important role in the American founding. He um, signed the Declaration of Independence. He was intimately involved in debates over the Constitution. An early Supreme Court justice wrote a number of important pamphlets. James Wilson is an immigrant from Scotland. He apparently was considering the ministry as a young man, um, ended up not having the patience for it, or maybe he had the ambition that led him in other directions, came over here, eventually um, studied as an attorney, and rapidly, because I think of his classical education, became one of the most prominent attorneys in the United States of America. One of the reasons I was drawn to him is he gives really the first systematic series of law lectures on American law. And when you read these, you would be excused for thinking you're sometimes reading St. Thomas Aquinas. He literally makes distinctions like this. There are four types of law, the eternal law, the celestial law, natural physical laws, and natural moral laws. There are two types of human law divine and international. Human law must be based upon God's moral law if it to be, is to be valid. An unjust law is no law at all. And he proceeds to lay out what I think is a very orthodox approach to law, a very Protestant. He, he gets his Aquinas through Richard Hooker. And so, you know, when he discusses about scripture, he says things like, well, um, reason and scripture never contradict each other, which I agree. And yet Greg Frazier would point to that and say, oh, look, he's elevating reason above scripture, an argument I still don't get to this day. Um, so I, I think, you know, he maybe is not as firmly committed to TULIP as I am, you know, not a thoroughgoing Calvinist, but there's no reason to think he's a deist or, or a theistic rationalist. There's every reason to think that he's a, um, a, a solid Christian who actually makes an effort to apply his faith to the study of law and to his political activity. Now, I, I want to be careful not to say he's representative. Again, in some ways, he's very unrepresentative, right? He had an elite education. He immigrated over here. I think to get at more representative founders, we need to turn our eyes to people who were born and raised in America and kind of came up through the farm teams, in other words, right? People like Roger Sherman and Oliver Ellsworth. Sherman didn't even have a college degree. He was a cobbler, and yet he taught himself math. He taught himself law. He worked up. Roger Sherman, his um, pastor was Jonathan Edwards, Jr. Um, he wrote sermons. He, he, he debated John Witherspoon and others, uh, and, you know, just a thoroughly orthodox Christian who I think is very representative, actually, of the 50 to 75% of Americans who are reasonably labeled as Calvinist in that area. I, I want to highlight that real quickly, if I may. Think of the elite founders we know. Washington, I'm skipping over Adams, but Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, John Jay, they're all Anglicans members of the Church of England, in an era where Anglicans are about 15% of the American population, of the of the elite founders, the only one who is, is in the Calvinist tradition is John Adams, and I admit that he's a bad Calvinist, but if we turn our eyes beyond a handful of Calvinists in Boston to the rest of, you know, these Scotch-Irish and these, these Congregationalists and others, I think you have every reason to believe that they're profoundly influenced by the Reformed political tradition, and this has a great impact when it comes to, for instance, a war for American independence. I'm wondering, Mark, if you look at the, 
you know, wrestling with the founding and, and then, you know, are they deists, are they theistic rationalists or what are they? We can also look at what they actually implemented in terms of some of their ideas. And, and I've always thought, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, the strong emphasis in the American system on the balance of powers. And the real reason for that is because they believed in human depravity and that they didn't want to concentrate power in too few hands type of thing. And that's a little different than what you see with, say, the French Revolution and the philosophes and the different philosophical traditions that impact Europe and and what's going on there versus here. And that shows something of a theology at work, right? So it's showing belief system being put into practice. I don't know if that's a correct way of looking at this. No, you took the words out right out of my mouth. So in the in the chapter, does America have a godless constitution or something like that? I argue that no, that in fact we have a very godly constitution. Now the the, the deity is only referenced one time in the dateline, right? In the year of our Lord, uh, but that doesn't matter. It's the ideas that matter, and you point to one of the critical ones: all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even Christians struggle with the old man within. So even if we know all of our political leaders at the federal level say are going to be Christians, that still want to protect us from corruption, from tears. And so, therefore, we need the separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism. Um, If men were angel, government wouldn't be necessary, says James Madison in Federalist 51. Uh, But they aren't angels. Now, we could say, wait a minute, is that a distinctively Christian idea? And we would have to say no. You could be a Chinese peasant in the ninth century and observe the world around you and come to the conclusion that, yeah, people are sinful or whatever the Chinese word is for sin or self-interested, if you prefer. But you think about the American political class, 98% Protestant, Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic, 50 to 75% Calvinist. Many grew up learning to read in the, with the New England primer that has this great little rhyme, A, Adams, in Adam's sin we fall all, or something to this effect, right? I think the best explanation for why America's founders had this relatively low view of human nature in the sense that we're created in the Mago Dei and should be treated with respect and dignity, but humans are sinful, therefore we need separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism. And you're exactly right. The Enlightenment philosophers are going the exact opposite way. Um, we want a government by the elites. Who wants a hoit poi to rule, right? We want the educated elites. A PhD professor should be running everything. And we should have highly centralized government where we can dictate the truth from Paris to the entire country. America's founders had nothing to do with that approach to politics. Well, it would also seem that there's, a, you know, the strong Protestant influence with the priesthood of all believers, right, standing over against a sort of a, a clergy class and a hierarchical class that it gets democratized with the people. It is a republic, yet there's influences there that aren't coming just with what you would see in some of the European systems and the monarchies and even some of the Roman Catholic influence. I think that's right. So in Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, I have a um, chapter in the Puritans in my book on Roger Sherman. I, I trace this out as well. It's almost a mathematical formula, right? The Protestant reformers emphasize the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. They also emphasize the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Every individual is responsible for searching the scriptures for himself And some were even coming to say herself. And so what you see in Protestant countries is literacy rates explode. You 
have almost universal male literacy in, in New England, for instance, and, um, and female literacy is ahead of anywhere else it is in the world. Now, Reformed churches organize themselves in different ways, but in New England, you have the Congregationalists, right? They're organizing themselves at the congregational level. The pastor dies. We need a new pastor. What are we going to do? Let's debate it as a congregation. We're going to talk about it. Then we'll eventually vote. That sounds a heck of a lot like democracy, right? And this spills over into civic government. And so you're having elections every six months where almost any male who wants to can vote. There are property qualifications, but in New England and really throughout all America, almost any male with any gumption can own property. And you have um, suffrage rates upwards of 60, uh, 75, 80 percent in New England. So a very democratic people who get used to governing themselves. Now, you are right to distinguish. They do some direct democracy, but usually at the colonial level, they're represented. And so then they'll have elections for representatives, in some cases, upper house, in some cases, governor as well. You have the rule of law. There's a recognition that even these Republican legislatures can't just do whatever they want, right? They have to print the laws. They're bound by the laws. You really could not find a better place to live politically from our perspective than 17th century New England. Nowhere in the, else in the world does better. Now, of course, they aren't 21st century Democrats. We might say, oh, they didn't let women vote. And that's problematic, right? And I'm glad for the advances we've made. But compared to anywhere else in the world at any time previous, you have a greater equality and justice for all than literally anywhere, even England, certainly England. Well, Mark, I think that's helpful. And certainly you have argued this in your books and just kind of spilled this out here that the America's founding was deeply influenced by Christian ideas and Christian individuals in the church. What about the other way? How, how is the American church impacted by just the American government? We were talking just before we got on here about the changes with regards to the Westminster Confession. What impact did America itself impact? How did that impact the church? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And I'd have to kind of sort that out America per se versus what's going on over in Holland, Switzerland, England. You see a development and it's a very healthy development, right? So you go back to the 17th century, the historian, no relation, David D. Hall points out that everywhere in the 17th century, it's just assumed that the Christian prince will promote true religion that the Christian prince will punish heresy, probably have an established church, tax everyone to support the established church. Maybe we'll tolerate Protestant dissenters. Maybe we won't if they're Quakers. And certainly we're not going to tolerate the Jesuits, right? What you see throughout the late 17th and especially in the 18th century is you see colonial governments liberalize in, in, in a good way, right? They begin to recognize that the sort of religious persecution doesn't work. And maybe it's even unbiblical, un godly. And you see this in the work of Roger Williams, William Penn, later Isaac Bacchus, Elisha Williams. These folks are making explicitly Protestant arguments in favor of religious liberty. And the nation goes in this direction. It goes voluntarily. England is exercising very little oversight of the United States of America, the colonies. And so what you're seeing in the colonies, they're voting to accept Quakers and Baptists and to exempt them from taxation. And by the time you get to the late 18th century, you're seeing the disestablishment of state churches. Uh, but you 
usually, you know, we usually focus on a Thomas Jefferson or James Madison's contributions. By and large, it's Christians saying, look, religious establishments hurt true Christianity. So you are seeing these changes, um, but I think they're profoundly driven by Christians making Christian arguments. And so a good example of this, we were chatting about this briefly, the Westminster Catechism concedes to civil authority the right to call synods. When the Presbyterians in America revise the Westminster Confession, I think it's 1788, they get rid of that altogether. They say, no, the, 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 the civil rulers have no business calling church councils and certainly not of judging church councils. And I think that's exactly right. And so into the 18th century, you begin to see you know, more and more of this. Now America lags behind in some areas. We have so far too much anti-Catholicism in the 19th century. Jehovah's Witnesses were treated horribly in the mid-20th century. The Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints treated horribly in the 19th century. And I don't say this as a warm, fuzzy relativist. I will try to convince any Mormon who will talk to me that he should become an Orthodox Christian. But the reality is, I, I think God would have us treat everyone with respect and dignity, and this certainly includes not chasing people across the country and killing them. Do you, do you think some of that with the the Mormons was tied to their acceptance of polygamy and then not wanting that to be in, so which would be another evidence. Now, however we deal with that and however we treat them, of course, is, uh, you know, we have to wrestle with that and we have to treat people with respect and so on. Yet there was still um, the emphasis on, say, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, its place in the country, right, which is, again, another evidence that they're not governing by a moral standards and laws that are independent of Christianity. I mean, it's built upon the, the, the scriptures at that point. No, I think that's right. And so I argued this in both of the two recent books. I think Christian theology, Protestant theology specifically, requires, I happen to think this is a founding consensus as well, as well. so I'd say the First Amendment requires, that people be free to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. The government just simply has no business saying, take the Eucharist, don't take the Eucharist, baptize babies, baptize adults. Um, there should be a great deal of freedom there. I would also say people should be free to act upon their religious convictions whenever possible. Jack Phillips shouldn't be forced to bake a cake, the, and the message of which he disagrees with, and he has religious objections to it as well. Native Americans should be able to use peyote in religious ceremonies, but religious liberty can't be absolute. And I think you can make an excellent argument that there are good, solid reasons, compelling reasons, for prohibiting polygamy. This almost always works out horribly for women, and we can document this, and it often works out horribly for children. And so for reasons that have nothing to do with theology and marriage, it's appropriate for a state to, to ban polygamy and other things, right? There are other things as well. Christian scientists who want to not treat their, their babies with medical treatments that we know will work for pneumonia or something like that. Yeah, the state can step in and say, no, you don't get to act on that religious conviction. Uh, but we're going to keep you from not acting on it in the least intrusive means. This certainly doesn't mean chasing you across the United States of America and killing far too many of you. Yeah, just following up on, on the previous discussion on changes from Europe in terms of, say, the Westminster Catechism bringing over to America, there's probably a lot of reasons. Uh, it's hard to nail down just, you know, a couple, you know, of them type of thing. But I mean, are they making, uh, as it comes to America, a kind of historical observation that the wars of religion didn't 
turn out well. Uh, so we don't want to bring that over to America. Is, is that that may be part of it? Are there actually theological arguments being made, biblical theological? And you mentioned uh, Roger Williams, Isaac Backus. I mean, there there you have the influence of more of the Baptist direction, which which was work with a, a more of a church state distinction than you would see uh, in terms of some of the magisterial reformers. I mean, is, is that going on? I mean, there's probably a lot of factors, but what's what's changing this? Yes, I, I'm an ideas guy. So I do like the idea that, you know, arguments based on scriptures can work. And you have William Penn, who's making these arguments as well, coming out of the Quaker tradition, Elisha Williams, a congregational. So you are having a variety of people who are making them. Roger Williams is originally published in England, and he's almost not known in America. Um, he's known as a civic founder, but his arguments aren't all that known until much later with the Baptists kind of rediscover him. And so I, I'd like to think these arguments broadly, you know, there's scriptural appeals that aren't distinctively Quaker or or Baptist that they would have an impact on, on Congregationalists and Presbyterians and others. I do think there's an element of practicality here. Um, and you see this in England too, right? England um, passes the Act of Toleration. England passes the Quaker Act. The Quaker Act specifically says, look, we have these Quakers, a society of friends. They have this, this theological view that we view as nuts, although ironically, they're taking Jesus literally, right? When he says, swear not at all, but you're yea be nay and you nay be nay. So they aren't pulling this from thin air. They're pulling it from scripture. So the Quakers refuse to swear oaths. They are thrown in jail by the thousands in England because they won't swear loyalty oaths or they, or they can't testify um, in, in court to defend their own property or this sort of thing. Literally hundreds of Quakers die. These are among the best citizens. And I think Parliament eventually figures out it makes no sense to be doing this. So let's pass a Quaker Act to permit 1696 to permit Quakers to affirm rather than swear oaths. That's all they're asking for. You can give them an oath. They'll affirm it. They just won't swear it, right? And so you're seeing these changes in England, I, I think in Holland as well. You're seeing it in America. Again, I, I do this at some length and did America have a Christian founding? I think the number one reason that, that, that states are getting out of the business of having established churches is because Christians have been convinced this is always bad for the church in Virginia, it was a house of burgesses that told the Church of England how it would govern itself. That was part of the establishment, right? Does this really seem to anyone like a good idea? We're in a relatively red state of Virginia, at least two of us. Do we really want the General Assembly saying how your church will be governed? I think this is a horrible idea. Who should be the minister or who should be taxed to pay for this? Yeah, I think this is a development. I think America's ahead of it. Obviously, England still has an established church, although it's a fairly toothless establishment at this point. Yeah, it was interesting in 2020 uh, when our governor of Virginia here was giving directions to local churches of what they needed to do with how to gather and uh, giving suggestions there. But certainly we feel the, the oddity of that and the unrighteousness of that because of our history, because of the way scripture leads us to understand the relationship between church and state. So Mark, I'd love to ask the question. So when the constitution said that the Congress shall not establish a national church, there were still many states that had state churches. Can you talk to us about, was there still a sense that the states could establish churches there? Was this kind of passing out? Was it an already not yet? How, how do we understand that? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. So, yeah, beyond question, the First Amendment restricts only the national government originally. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Clearly a restriction on the national government. What you have at the state level is during the War for American Independence, almost right away, states started disestablishing the Church of England. You know, think about it, right? The king is the head of the Church of England. So these southern states that had the Church of England as the established church began to move away from it or began to exempt my, uh, dissenters from taxes and this sort of thing. I forget the exact count. Let's say maybe seven, six, seven states still have established churches around the time of the Constitution, but everyone's moving away from it. So by the time you get to 1832, Massachusetts is the last state with an established church. Now, when I say that, we're thinking, I think most people think, and this is reasonable, we're thinking about some sort of scheme by which people are taxed to support a favored church. Oftentimes, it actually became a multiple establishment where people would be taxed to support the church they choose to attend. So Germany still has this model. Catholics are taxed to support the Catholic Church, Lutherans, the Lutheran Church. Even Jews can be taxed to support the local synagogue. So this is not exactly an oppressive establishment, but you still have many states with religious tests for office. You still have states punishing blasphemy into the 19th century. The, the First Amendment has no restriction on the states. The states remain in the business of protecting, promoting religion in some way, shape, or form. You know, some do more than others. New England tended to be a little more heavy-handed than, say, the mid-Atlantic states. But they're still doing this, and they're constitutionally permitted to do this. It is not until 1947 that Congress, through the 14th Amendment, that the U.S. Supreme Court, through the 14th Amendment, applies the Establishment Clause to the states. Now, to my way of reading the Establishment Clause, this really is no big deal, because all the Establishment Clause does, it might do a little more than this, but it doesn't do much more. The Establishment Clause says Congress will not create a national church. So now that it applies to the states, I think Virginia cannot create a state church, or Kentucky cannot create a state church. But there's still lots of room to do lots of other things. For instance, to adopt a robust voucher system that um, permits parents to send their children to Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, and secular schools. It certainly doesn't require a 1925 World War I era cross on public land to be torn down. Um, it certainly doesn't prohibit states from accommodating Muslim women who feel they need to wear the hijab in their place of employment. And so there's still a lot of things the state can do to protect religion in a, in a variety of circumstances. It just can't have an established church. What the U.S. Supreme Court did in that 1947 case, though, is it engaged in some really bad history. Literally, both the dissent and the um, majority opinion argued this. We must interpret the First Amendment in light of the founders' views. The founders wanted the strict separation of church and state. Therefore, the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, specifically requires the strict separation of church and state. And so this really bad history led to some horrendous jurisprudence, culminating with the Lemon Test in the early 1970s and the crazy raft of decisions in the 70s and 80s that no one could predict. It was just horrible jurisprudence. Fortunately, the court has moved back to an original understanding of the Establishment Clause, which, again, it might mean a little bit more than this, but in effect, it means a state cannot create an official state church. But lots of other things are permissible under this understanding. Yeah, if we go back to, um, you know, the original states and there are some of them having establishment religion and then, of course, the Congress can't do that. 
I would say, I mean, help me if I'm wrong here. I mean, the Decalogue, I mean, the moral, what we often identify as the moral law was functioning in the country. So do you know if, I mean, certain states would say, well, it's legitimate to enforce sort of the second table of that law that applies to humans and not the first table? Or would they say, no, the entire Decalogue, which would include then issues of blasphemy, issues of Sabbath and and so on. How was that viewed in the states? Did it vary from state to state? Yeah, I would say no state Almost no one in any state legislature would, would question whether or not the state authorities could um, legislate based on the, the second table of the law. You know, that's just uniform, and no one would find it to be problematic to make an argument um, such as this. You know, the, the Bible clearly condemns murder, so therefore murder should be illegal and the penalty should be this. Many states continued well into the 20th century to enforce a fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy. There is Sabbath legislation almost everywhere. In the middle of the 19th century, some state Supreme Court starts striking it down based on their state constitutions. Some states voted out. Many states, what actually happens in most states is most states create exception after exception after exception such that the, the law is almost meaningless. The U.S. Supreme Court has never struck down these Sabbath laws as a violation of the Establishment Clause. There was a series of cases right around 1960 that made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the court, it, a number of them were brought by Jewish merchants who claimed that they were disadvantaged because they had to shut their businesses on Saturday, but then they were forced by the state to shut them on Sunday. And, this, and so they had religious liberty and Establishment Clause claims both. The U.S. Supreme Court considered them and said, oh, too bad. They're just fine. And what they did is they actually made non-religious arguments to support them. The state has an interest in a day of rest, and it can legislate in this if it wants. It doesn't have to, but it can. So these laws have not been struck down to the present day. And as you point out, laws against blasphemy um, were implemented Usually, I think it was not statutory law. I think it was based on a common law understanding that blasphemy is, is, is illegal. But some people were successfully prosecuted for blasphemy. State courts moved pretty rapidly away from those sorts of prosecutions into the 19th century for a variety of reasons. And that's really outside of my area of expertise. But yeah, I just want to affirm that yeah, states are still doing this. If I can just jump way ahead, I think it's not till the mid-20th century that you really have many people, and they're mostly college professors, starting to argue that it's somehow illegitimate to legislate morality or to bring one's religious views into the public square. And really, it's not until you get to someone like John Rawls, a, a brilliant Harvard political philosopher, who makes these arguments about public reason that people start saying that's illegitimate. And it just takes a moment of reflection, right? Think about the civil rights movement led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Ralph Abernathy, Jesse Jackson, Thomas Young, and others, right? Here are ministers of the gospel bringing their faith into the public square to fight for justice. You have white ministers marching alongside them. You have plenty of citizens motivated by their faith to fight Jim Crow legislation. Absolutely, no one would have thought to question that. And even John Rawls has some problems explaining 
explaining why that was wrong. And in fact, he kind of cheats. He said, well, we could justify this activity on secular reasons. And so it's okay that the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. did what he did. Uh, But he's just cheating, right? When it comes to abortion, he says there are no good reasons to oppose abortion, only religious ones. So therefore, it's illegitimate for Christians to bring their faith into the public square to advocate that uh, against abortion. So let me suggest these ideas are very, very modern. They are, I think, not widespread, even in popular culture, and there's no reasons that Christians should, should buy into them. We have an obligation, I would say, to bring, be salt and light in, this, in the city, to bring our faith into the public square, advocating for justice, liberty, and equality for all. And by all, I mean literally all, right? Not just Christians. We should fight for the religious liberty of, of Muslims and Sikhs and others, um, even as we try to convert them um, with the mm-hmm. gospel. Mark, there's so many questions I want to ask in both directions, back toward the Puritans and then towards our our own day. And certainly we want to still get to just some contemporary questions regarding Christian nationalism and kind of what's at the forefront today, probably responding to a number of things that have changed, especially from the 1960s into the present, right? And there has been this radical separation between church and state where church Christians cannot bring their faith into the public square. But maybe to ask one question over the course of the 19th century, did America become more of a Christian nation with the Second Great Awakening, was there a greater sense that Americans would identify their nation as a Christian nation, even perhaps leading into the two world wars and you know the justice that they were standing up for a righteous nation against unrighteous nations? How do you kind of think about that? And, and I ask that in part because of the 1892 Supreme Court decision between Holy Trinity, United States, and what Joseph Story says that it is a Christian nation. Is that something that increased over that century? I would say, I want to be careful here. I'm really good in the late 18th century, not as good with everything else, but I'm not bad. And I think it's just entirely common to talk about America as a Christian nation Mm -hmm. in the 18th century through the 19th century, well into the 20th century, and I think Folks like Franklin Roosevelt did this quite a quite a bit in his war addresses, and 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 I don't think it is meant in a um, exclusive way, as if somehow the Jews that are here aren't fully part. It just is a recognition, right? Even in the, into the mid twentieth century, I think America is still probably you know ninety. Four percent people who would identify as Protestants or Catholics, and you know a good chunk of, uh, of Jewish citizens and a handful of uh, of others, and so yeah, it was just it, it was commonplace. It's only over the last. 50 years that you maybe get to move away from that. And there's a variety of reasons for that, right? Um, the Immigration Act of, I think, 1965 that opened the doors for lots of n- non-Christians to immigrate from Asia and elsewhere. Secularization, which has occurred for whatever reason, it's not just immigration, to be sure. So something like 37% of Americans today identify as, as nuns in ONES, right? So there's been changes, to be sure. Let me just take a Step back, if I may, to the American founding and make a distinction that I find important. I argue, and I have an entire book arguing that America had a Christian founding, but I don't actually argue that America was founded as a Christian nation. Because to my ears, and I think to many modern ears, that just sounds exclusive, as if it's a nation founded by and for Christians, where non-Christians you know, maybe, maybe be tolerated 
but not much more than that. I just don't think that was the case, right? The Constitution contains Article 6 that banned religious tests for federal office. In the ratification debates, anti-federal said, oh, this means a, a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist could hold office. And the federals had to say, yes, yes, it is. Um, that's a possibility. Now, it will never happen, they thought, but they, they recognized it's a possibility. My favorite letter from the era is George Washington's letter to the Hebrew synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, where he makes it crystal clear that Jews have just the exact same right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience as Catholics or Protestants or anyone else. And so I, I don't like the language that America was founded as a Christian nation. Um, I argue was found, we had a Christian founding, and that was good news for everyone. But to answer your question specifically, I think it is entirely, even someone like a Thomas Jefferson refers to America as a Christian nation. I think it's just more descriptive, right? It's just kind of a Christian nation as opposed to the Barbary pirates, which are Islamic nations. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think, you know, I asked the question of the Christian nation because that seems to be the language that is today. And so I think it's helpful to make that distinction of not overreading our current questions and our current situations back to the founding at that point. But maybe to get to some of the contemporary things, and I know that you've even done some writing on this and are working on more research on Christian nationalism, some of the contemporary issues today. What would you say to someone who is trying to go back and to say, what we want is for Christians to be able to have the freedom to worship and that we want to be able to see the morality that Christianity provides, the flourishing that comes for families, all the things that are, you know, have been taken away, and they're wanting to establish some kind of Christian nationalism in the present. How would your historical studies help to say, hold on, maybe we need to caution some things, or these are some good things that are with that language today? Sure. So I think what's real important to recognize, and you can do a Google Ingram search and find this for yourself, almost no one in America is using the phrase Christian nationalism before 2006. No one is saying, I am a Christian nationalist. No one is saying we should be Christian nationalists. In 2006, it began to be used by critics. Critics who said, oh my goodness, there are these theocrats out there that want to take over America for Christ and oppress racial minorities and women and, and you know, maybe only Protestants will be put on the very top white male Protestants. This is horrible. It's scary. We should be very, very afraid. It's an extension of the, the literature criticizing the religious right of the, uh, of the 90s and early 21st century. And so beginning in 2006, almost every other year, a book would come out. It's a screed, really. Most of them are polemical authors saying we should be very, very, very afraid. Again, no one is saying I'm a Christian nationalist. This is a good thing. And sometimes I think Christians are just dumb, literally dumb. So 2022, Marjorie Taylor Greene comes out and says, I'm a Christian nationalist. It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian nationalist. No, it's, it's just dumb. And then, of course, Stephen Wolf pub publishes a book advocating it for Orton Torba and Isker. I gather you're talking with Doug Wilson, and I appreciate his approach. He, he basically says, well, it's not a term I would choose, but I'm not going to run for it. If I'm allowed to define it, I'm going to define it as A, B, and C. And he defines it in a perfectly responsible way. I would just say to Wilson, that's imprudent. You're taking a label that has almost solely been used to criticize Christians, and you're accepting it. So I would say, look, conservative Christians who just simply reject that label. And let's say, look, we are Christians. We are followers of Christ. We have an obligation to uh, be salt and light in the city, and we are going to be politically active, and we are going to make the arguments that we want to make. And if we want to make biblical arguments, we'll make them. And certainly, there's nothing constitutionally to prohibit us from doing so. But perhaps if we're trying to reach people besides Christians, we might make moral arguments, arguments based on social science, arguments that we think will be effective. But that would 
would be our choice, not something imposed by the First Amendment or some sort of naked public square invented by John Rawls. Yeah, I think that's a, a helpful helpful word there, Mark. I know that you're working on a book on this very subject. You want to tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So I've probably published eight or nine short essays and book reviews. Um, If you just Google my name, Mark David Hall, Christian Nationalism, they should come up. I am working on a book-length treatment of it. And what I do is I I, I make everyone mad. I critique the critics. I think the critics are painting a picture of something that's overblown. Um, Whitehead and Perry claim that 51.9% of Americans are fully or partially in favor of this sort of Christian nationalism that they associate with racism and sexism and militarism and just every badism you can think of. Well, you know, if they were right, I would be scared to death. But I think their measures are so flawed and it's a ridiculous argument. I then turn around and I critique the Torben Escor and uh, Stephen Wolf and uh, Doug Wilson. I think they're being very imprudent. I think they're just dead wrong. More um, Wolf and Torben Esquire than, than Wilson, although I think Wilson's being imprudent. And then I actually lay out what I think Christian nationalism is. I think it does exist. I think we see it in far too many um, Southern Baptist churches on the 4th of July or the Sunday that falls right around the 4th of July. And I'm critical of this, but I suggest it's not an existential threat to American democracy or the Christian church like these critics say, say it is. Yeah. I was talking to a pastor just the the other day, and one of his concerns was that by using this language, if the the left continues to take the White House, and even in 2024 takes the White House, that it can be really used against Christians in great ways. I think there's great hope that that will be overturned and that the left won't have uh, the White House any longer. But if they do, uh, that there's just an invitation for concern there. It, it seems at the other time that one of the things that has happened is that there is a desire to press forward the claims of Christ into culture. And maybe, you know, there has been too much acceptance, maybe not, you know, certainly following John Rawls, but just this allowance for kind of separation of church and state without Christianity influencing the culture. And it's been interesting to me, I mean, just thinking about uh, the Puritans. The Puritans have regained a lot of credibility and publishing uh, from Banner of Truth and all the rest over the last 50 years and beyond. And certainly their salvation and, you know, their Christian life and Christian living, all those things have been certainly well received. But one question I had that relates to just kind of going back and pulling from that history has to do with their post-millennialism and even some of their political theology seems has not come across as much. Is there anything there that we should be thinking about? I think you've put your finger on something. All the people I've mentioned that are currently advocating for Christian nationalism, with the exception of Marjorie Taylor Greene, are post-millennialist, right? As was Roussas Shrestuni. And I think that's no accident. John Cotton, the great Puritan leader, was asked a question. He was asked, should Christians attempt to Christianize society? And I love his answer. He said, if you are a Christian in Turkey, no, you keep your head down, right? You keep your head down, you be as obedient to God as you can, and you worship him in spirit and truth. If you're a Christian in England, well, you should probably make some effort to do that. But we have so many entrenched norms and laws and policies and institutions. Good luck with that. But in the United States of America, in in Massachusetts Bay, where we have a, a, a group of immigrants who are largely on the same page theologically, and we have, you know, this great freedom to craft new laws and institutions, then absolutely we should do this. 
And I have to say, I find that vision very attractive. But here's my, my caution, and I interact with a lot. It, it tends to be younger men in their 20s that are just sick of political liberalism. And they're saying, why in the world are we having drag queen story hours in, in public libraries? And why don't we bring back blasphemy laws and that sort of thing? And these are the people that I think are attracted to reading it, Stephen Wolf or Torbjorn Iskorn, this sort of thing. And I think here's where we need to be very prudent. Um, these young men, let's say that federalism allowed them to do this in some places. Things might work out pretty well for Christians in a um, Louisiana, Alabama, Oklahoma, right? I can tell you until very recently, I've been a citizen of Oregon, citizens of Washington, California, anywhere in New England, New York. I mean, this will work out really, really poorly for conservatives and Christians in many, many places, places that have probably a vast majority of the American population. And so I would say we should be careful before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Christians have made a lot of gains. Religious liberty is very well protected today. Uh, religious liberty of Christians, right? We saw this in 303 Creative, Jack Phillips, and he's still being persecuted. But when he had to stay in court, he won. And I, I think freedom of speech it benefits conservative Christians. It lets us go into the public square and share the gospel and make our arguments. And if we say liberalism is done and the state's going to impose certain values on people, again, it might work out well for Christians in some deeply red states. Overall, I think it would be a very bad thing for Christians. And so I think there's prudential reasons to say what might have been kind of cool in Puritan New England is not the case in our pluralistic environment, in which 37% of the people don't even identify as Christians, and many identify as something other than Christian. And then when you take those who identify as Christians who bother to go to church or, or pray or read their Bible, you know, we're a minority, and we need to be cognizant of that, I think. Steve, do you think that what Mark just put his finger on, the difference between kind of a post-millennial eschatology and even the difference between a Presbyterian understanding and, let's say, a Baptist understanding, is that one of the great divides that is between those who are for Christian nationalism and against right now? Well, I think it's greatly influencing it. Uh, so you can have, obviously, all Christians, we don't at Christ overall identify as Presbyterian or post-millennial, and we're wanting to influence the larger culture. Uh, we want to see that the founding of the nation has been influenced by Christianity. You can't even understand the country without uh, the impact of Christian doctrine and theology and so on. Uh, yet, in terms of the solutions for today, and especially the change that we've seen now in a pluralistic culture, how one views the relation of the covenants, how one understands church and state, how one understands what this nation is as a nation, as a Christian nation, the post-mill vision is, of course, of evangelizing and taking the gospel and transforming nations, not just people out of the nation that then enter into the church. So that is going to affect how they view the mission of the church here, the role that they have in this country, and then also how they will then, I think, interpret the past. Because there was a lot of obviously Puritan and post-mill influences and covenant theology and Calvinistic influences from the past, but we do have to reconcile and, and come to grips with uh, our present situation is not like it was in the founding of this nation. And so we have to be practical and also say, how do we bring our Christian convictions to bear on the present world we live? And of course, that's going to be affected now by a larger theology that we have. Yeah. 
Well, I think we could keep going, talking about these things, and it sounds like there's many more conversations that we need to have to think through this. For those who are listening today, I would simply say that uh, that Mark's book that he's mentioned multiple times, Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land, really fills in the gaps of some of our conversation today. And Mark, we really appreciate your time with us today talking about these things. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And Steve, as always, it's great to be with you, brother. Yeah, very important conversation, trying to gain historical perspective. Mark, thank you for, you know, just helping us think through the founding of the nation. So many different reports out there, aren't there? So just getting some sense of what what has happened in the past so we can build for the present. Well, thank you all so much. It's been a real pleasure. Amen. And friends, thank you for listening today. All month long, we'll be offering interviews on the subject of Christian nationalism. These interviews include church historians, theologians, and pastors, all of whom are listed on our website. Our aim this month is to provide definitions and clarifications from all those who are pushing for and pushing against Christian nationalism. Next month, we'll begin analyzing some of these arguments and offering many articles and essays outlining a constructive vision of church and state. Until then, enjoy the podcasts. And if you find them helpful, please pass them on to others. You can also subscribe to our podcast, follow Christ Overall on Twitter, or reach out to us by email. Our ministry depends upon the generous donations of friends as well, and we would also accept your cheerful gift as it helps us to continue to bring these resources to you for free. All of these things can be found at our website, ChristOverall.com. For now, wherever you stand on Christianity and culture, church and state, Christian nationalism or not, let us remember that Christ is Lord, and so in all things, let us exalt Christ.